Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. So today, um, I want to talk to you guys about signs, miracles, and wonders. And um, this is a topic that I've actually struggled with. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be very honest with you guys this morning. I'm always honest with you, but I'm more like personally honest with you about some things that I've struggled with over the years. And I would say that this is the one topic that I've struggled with, uh, with most over the last several years. And by that, I mean I have grappled with it. Like I have wrestled with the topic in the Word of God. I have tried to figure out exactly uh, what role that signs, miracles, and wonders have in the greater uh, body of Christ. Uh, never in the sense have I grappled with whether or not they were true, okay? I'm not one of these like uh, progressive liberal Christians that say the Red Sea was actually the Reed Sea and, and that God drowned Pharaoh's army in three inches of water. That's more of a miracle than, than uh, you know, drowning a whole army in three inches of water. They say it was the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea and all that stuff. That's, that's ridiculous. I believe the miracles took place. I, I've never had an issue whatsoever with believing um, signs, miracles, and wonders that, that are proclaimed in God's Word. I believe they happen. I believe wholeheartedly with no doubt that everything that is said about them in Scripture, everything that's said about Old Testament prophets and what they did, everything that was said about Jesus and the apostles and what they did, absolutely believe that it's, it's truth, okay? It actually happened exactly as it was described. I don't spiritualize it or, um, or try to explain it away. The issue for me is this, and, and it really boils down to a few questions. Does the Bible teach that believers today, you and I, are commissioned or commanded to go to the far reaches of the planet and perform the same signs, miracles, and wonders that Jesus and the apostles did? Is it our responsibility to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to prophesy new revelation from God to man? Is, it, is that our job? In other words, the same miracles that we read about in the pages of Scripture, is that supposed to be our modern-day reality for the believer today in the 21st century? Are we, are we missing it? Are we completely missing it? right? I have poured over Scripture for the last 30-some-odd years and wrestled with the Bible text. I've had countless conversations with godly men that I trust on both sides of the argument, various influences. Because of a company that I used to work for, I was actually right in the beginning stages of what is today known as uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, okay? I knew these guys personally, uh, a man by the name of C. Peter Wagner, Chuck Pierce, all these, these folks that uh, declare themselves today modern-day apostles and prophets, and I actually knew them personally. I used to run a camera for all their conferences all over the U.S., and so I talked with them and uh, asked them questions as well. So I'm not one that's been outside uh, looking in, trying to figure it out. I've actually really made it a point to try to figure out exactly what God's Word says and also, um, to a lesser degree, uh, get the on record kind of the, 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 the folks who say that it's part of their experience today. Um, 
And the truth is, y'all, I've swung from one extreme to the next and to the other in the last 30 years uh, personally. But as a believer now for the last, I don't know, I was five years old, so that makes me a 40, uh, that makes me 41 years a Christian, okay? Um, and probably 30 of those years I've been really digging in trying to figure this out, like swinging back and forth, you know, wrestling with it. And I'm, I'm very happy to tell you today that I have personally, in the pages of Scripture, I have personally found peace and rest and have come to a biblical conclusion on what I believe, and I believe it's taken from the text of Scripture itself. Now, that is not to say that you can't disagree with me. You can disagree with me. Um, I'm sure there are many things that we all disagree on. But what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to give you a case from Scripture, what I believe God's Word lines out, which also has built-in protection for the believer today to know whether or not there are these folks out there, apostles and prophets, modern day, uh, expressing new revelation from God to man and all that, and we're going to get into it, okay? But I have peace in the matter, and it is my hope, and I know for a fact some of you guys struggle with the same thing. I know you've struggled with the same thing. So I've put it to rest, and I'm very happy to say that. I hope you guys, maybe this will just be one of those instances where you hear one side of an argument and then you dig in God's Word and you come to the conclusion yourself. I do believe God's Word gives us the truth. I don't believe there's your truth and my truth. I believe there's God's Word and there is a truth that is supposed to be, we're supposed to be unified on in God's Word. So I'm going to share it with you over the next couple weeks using only God's Word. I'm going to keep my opinions out of it, okay? I'm just going to make a biblical case. Um, I just want to say, though, that for some people, you, you can make a biblical case till you're blue in the face and it will not be enough because some people just want to believe and just believe at a very simplistic level and they have no desire and no drive to really push further or dig deeper or really understand God's word and, and, and what it really means for the believer today. And, and folks, listen, understanding God's word is the purpose. Understanding is the purpose. He wants to open your eyes and open your mind to the truth of the world around you. And, all, and also, and by that, when I say the truth of the world around you, what I mean is the lies that are encircling this, this, um, this storm, this hurricane of lies that we find ourselves in in modern day. Uh, if you have understanding of God's word and you can see the lies for what they are, the lies of the enemy, the lies of the world, the lies of your flesh, the lies of false prophets and false teachers, if you can see those things, then it will drive how you live. It'll, it'll uh, be the passion behind why you do the things you do, how you act, how you speak, how you treat others, and how you worship and honor God. Like it, it defines all of that stuff if we get the word of God right. So some people though, they believe and they're more loyal to their upbringing, right? Um, they're more loyal to different things than they are their loyalty to God's word. Just saying, well, for example, I mentioned their upbringing. They're really attached to their roots and it's part of their identity, right? They're, they were raised this way or they were raised that way and they're going to, they hold on to that because it kind of defines who they are. Well, 
as a believer, we, we empty ourselves of our identity. We die to self. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. Do you see how that works? So the identity is important, but we're supposed to really be devoid of our identity. We're supposed to let Christ live through us. So all the things that we have to offer, He still uses that through us, okay? But then all the areas of weakness in our lives, He fills. That's, that's what God's Word means when it says that in our weakness, He is strong. In those areas that we can't do well, uh, he, he fills us up. He, he does it for us. And to be quite honest, even the areas that you think you're strong compared to him is meh, you know. The Bible says filthy rags. So uh, some people are more um, beholden to their denomination, the teachings of men, kind of what they were raised in as far as their, their religious background. They are more, uh, this is a big one today, they are much more loyal to their own personal emotions than they are the truth of God's Word. So if it makes me feel icky on the inside, then I don't want to believe it, okay? If it's something that culture is wrapping their arms around and embracing and God's Word says it's wrong, you guys know the whole deal with that. And, that, and name your sin. That ha- I mean, it's just out there. Say one thing about, about modesty of young women on Facebook and you're going to get your head ripped off by Christians. <laughs> Because, because, I mean, there are, this, there are all these things that, that the church today, that Christians today embrace as being the norm of Christianity. And, and in actuality, they don't realize that they are so far shifted in the wrong direction away from what the Bible says is truth. And then there's a thing called cognitive dissonance. You guys know what that is? It's, it's like you just can't handle it. Like, I, I believe this for so long. If I... If I put my, if I change what I believe right now, I'm going to have a meltdown, right? Like you just can't imagine it being something else uh, than what you've always believed or what you've always been taught. And then, of course, there's the spiritual leadership that they followed, whether preachers or teachers, uh, YouTube people, uh, televangelists, all of these things, or even folks, I mean, one of the hardest things are family members that we love and respect and respect family members that we're close to and they have very strong, passionate beliefs about something and we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, butt heads with our own family members. We don't want to lose the people we love because they believe one thing and we believe something else. So um, those are very, very difficult obstacles to get beyond when we're talking about things like uh, signs, miracles, and wonders, like the work of the Holy Spirit, things like that. And Even if your beliefs are confronted with a solid biblical case, again, the idea of actually changing what you believe for me is very difficult. For you, it's very difficult. I I mean, I know it is. I've been there and I know you've been there. But what we're called to do as believers is when we're confronted with a biblical truth and we see it and our eyes are opened, you can't unsee it. It's like you are now, it's like when Paul said, I I would not have known to not to covet if the law hadn't told me not to covet, like I didn't even know I was sinning. And then the law told me I was sinning and man, now I realize I'm sinning all, you know. And so when our eyes are open to something, then we're held accountable to that. And that's honestly what part, part of the, the word of God does for you. And also what coming to a local church and what the pastor does is pointing things out in God's word. And then you, you're being transformed in an image of Christ because you're getting the mind of Christ as you allow God's word to transform you. So, 
Um, I want to say this from the beginning that your interpretation method uh, plays a major role in the conclusions that you come to. And, and this is unfortunately an impasse for some people. So if you and I are talking and you say, well, you know, uh, I take a loosey-goosey approach to every verse, every passage of Scripture in the Bible applies to me, right? And, and you don't rightly divide the truth. You don't understand that, that God had different periods of time in which He dealt with uh, Israel and He dealt with Gentiles and He dealt with different people in different ways throughout the ages and you just throw all in on and, and just believe whatever's in the Bible, right, um, uh, applies to me. My dad used to say, uh, Judas Iscariot went out and hanged himself. Go ye therefore and do likewise. Like he just took two scriptures and they both apply to me. So, it, but, but I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, uh, that's what some preachers are doing. They're just grabbing and that's what some Christians do. They just grab, cherry pick from all over scripture and build their own construct of theology or belief and it's absolutely false. So again, we have to understand that there are two different ways of looking or interpreting Scripture. And I'll tell you, I take the absolute most strict uh, approach to interpreting Scripture that I can because I believe that God does not want us to have ambiguity when it comes to His truth. We ought to be able to open the Word of God and read the Word of God and know that what's said is truth and that it's not up for someone's interpretation. Well, what I think this means is this, and what I think this means is that. I mean, how is anybody going to find truth in that? It's just a hodgepodge of different opinions on the text. No, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Holy Spirit meant what He, what he said when He wrote the Bible, and every jot, every tittle is divinely inspired by God, and that's the approach I believe that we should take is that we have a strict biblical, what's the fancy word, a hermeneutic, right? A strict biblical hermeneutic, a framework of proper, proper biblical interpretation with no ambiguity. Uh, don't force your dreams, your wants, your will, your desires onto Scripture. No, Jeremiah 29, 11 is not for you, okay? You can't do, uh, when Paul was talking about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he wasn't trying to pray to win the football game on Friday night, okay? That is not how you use Scripture. It meant something when it was written, and it means something for us today if we apply it properly, okay? So you can't find uh, your own truth in Scripture. You have to find the truth. And the best way to do that is to have a strict interpretation uh, method, okay? So um, God... If you do this, you will see that God has always been consistent from, from the first page of Scripture all the way to the last page of Scripture. You will see that mankind has been very predictable and very consistent from the first page of Scripture to the very last page of Scripture. And, and you will just begin to see everything around you the way, honestly, the way that God sees it. The more you, you understand God's Word, okay? God has not changed. And so the way he interacts with, with us and reconciling us to him and what he expects of man, what he knows of us and what we know of him, none of that has changed. And so it's all revealed what's expected of each believer today. All of that, here's what you have to understand. It's all driven by his eternal purposes. So 
He does things in Scripture because it suits His purposes, not yours. Do y'all get that? It's, it's about Him. It's for His glory. It's not about you. You get to be a part of it. You are privileged to be a part of what God is doing, but it's not about you. And that's very, very important to understand. It's all about His eternal purpose, and that's why we trust Him like Job trusted Him when Job said, though He slay me, I will trust Him. That this world can do its worst, the devil can do its worst, uh, uh, even my own sinful nature is going to try to do its worst, but I'm going to put my trust in the Lord. And that's the life of the believer. No matter what happens, we trust God. Okay? So I want to begin our study of signs, miracles, and wonders um, with the topic of divine revelation. And the question is this. Does God call men of God like the apostles Peter and Paul today? Does God reveal truth to modern day prophets and apostles? Does God speak to me directly on the same level as God's word, thus saith the Lord. Does God speak to me divinely? And if it is God, if it's the Holy Spirit talking to me, then why is it not on the same level as Scripture? So then we have to ask that question. Well, if it's God talking, then why is it not equal to Scripture? Okay? And, and if so, then do we have a way to differentiate between our own thoughts and what we feel like the Holy Spirit's saying? All of that stuff... But we're going to get the answer in God's Word, okay? We're going to get the answer in God's Word. First, I believe there that Scripture teaches us that there's a unique role, a part to play for miracles, signs, and wonders throughout the pages of Scripture. Um, many of us grew up in Sunday school, and we heard the highlights of all, right, you, the little flannel graphs. I don't know if you guys had that experience or not, but it was awesome. The little flannel graphs that they used... And uh, I want to get life-size ones. I think that would be amazing. Um, and, and they would tell the Bible stories. We learned all the Bible stories when I was a kid. And you would think when you go to Sunday school and you're constantly hearing of all these highlights, right? It's like watching the highlight reel of the Super Bowl. Um, and, and you're seeing all the most awesome moments. Well, you can, you can get the idea that the whole game was that awesome. But no, they were taking... There were huddles and there were timeouts and there were all kinds of stuff going on. You just saw the highlight reel. Well, what we're seeing often is the highlight reel. I want to I show you that in Scripture, okay? Um, basically, um, in the Old Testament and the New, miracles were performed for a specific reason and including prophesying or declaring the divine word of God, Right? And if, so if they perform miracles, if they prophesy, doesn't it stand to reason that you and I should be doing the exact same, right? Well, if we take a closer look, as I said, in actuality, there were actually three main periods in all of human history in which God worked miracles through specifically called men. Three periods. In other words, there were only three periods of time in Scripture, out of all of Scripture, when God gave human beings uh, like uniquely called men of God to stand up and perform mighty works for him, okay? And the first period started with Moses around the 1490s BC, and then it continued into the life and calling of Joshua in the 1430s BC, and that period lasted about 60 years, okay? So through Moses and Joshua, there were many miracles that were performed, uh, but it was held to that 60-year period. 
The second period of commonplace miracles was during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And of course, we've heard all about uh, them and their ministries and, you know, Mount Carmel. And one of them called a bear out of the woods to eat a whole bunch of teenagers that were making fun of his bald head. I mean, some wonderful biblical stories. But, uh, but I mean, these things took place. Uh, and putting the biblical timeline together, those two ministered from about 860 B.C. until about 795 B.C. So the period, once again, was between 60 and 65 years in which those two men were called to uh, commonplace miracles, okay? The third time in which miracles were witnessed often was obviously with Christ and the apostles from about 34 B.C. to 100 A.D. And it's pretty obvious, as I said, that they began with Christ's ministry. Uh, Interesting to note is that John the Baptist, although he was called by God, he didn't perform any miracles. It wasn't until Jesus came on the scene when the miracles uh, began. So the supernatural miracles started with Jesus' ministry through the time of the apostles and lasted at the very longest until the death of the apostle John. Now look, you can challenge me on this. You go back in church history and and produce all the miracles that happened for a few thousand years between up to just about, you can't find them. Like, like literally they fell off. And then when John died, it was like no more. And when I say miracles, y'all, I'm talking about large scale biblical miracles. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Please hear me. I am not saying God doesn't heal people. I'm not saying God doesn't still work in the world and do things that are supernatural. What I'm saying is it is not the norm. It is not a normative everyday way of life for the believer, okay? And we are called to pray. We are called to stand in faith. We are called to lift people up when they are sick, uh, when they need healing. That is what we do. We put our faith in God, but ultimately we don't put our faith and stand firm and believe that they are going to be healed. We put our faith in God Almighty and say, thy will be done. It's, it's up to you, Lord. It's your will and your way. We want Him to do what He wills. We do not, want, we do not demand God do what we want Him to do, okay? So those supernatural miracles started with Jesus through the apostles, and as I said, that period of time lasted about 65 to 70 years. Uh, again, right in that same window or amount of time. So in thousands of years of human history, as I said before, There was only a total of around 200 years of all those thousands of years in which God was performing miracles through specially called men. Okay? Um, Even in those times, miracles didn't take place every day. All right? It wasn't like uh, Elijah went out and had birds bring him his breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Okay? That, that wasn't the way it worked. And I think it's Im- important to wrap our head around this because what happens, you guys, is there's a condemnation that's put on the body of Christ that if you don't do these things, then you're not living up to what God called you to be. All right? If you're not doing the same things Jesus did or the apostles did, then you're falling short of your call. And honestly, if you look at it, you realize, well, if I'm not doing it and I don't know anybody who's raising people from the dead, honestly, do y'all raise, anybody want to raise your hand and tell me if you've seen anybody raised from the dead recently? Um, yeah, I mean, 
you would think something like that would, would make some headlines, right? If somebody's been dead four days like Lazarus, and then they raised up from, from the dead, you would think that that would make some headlines, right? So um, the primary purpose of miracles, when you understand the primary purpose of miracles, then you understand why they happened, and it brings peace in the whole uh, matter for the believer today because you realize that God used them for a specific purpose, okay? There has to be a purpose. And the purpose of the miracles has always been for God to put his stamp of approval on his messenger, on his man. The miracles are not the thing. The miracles are not the focus. The man, the message was the focus. And that's what we're going to look through today. It was to validate, to confirm the credentials of his divinely appointed messenger, to establish without any doubt the credibility of the one who is speaking for God. When someone stands up and says, God told me this or God told me that or, or God is telling you this, buddy, they better be right. And this was God's way of confirming and validating that what these people were saying was actually from God Himself, okay? Miracles accompanied these men and that made certain that God had chosen to put His very words in the mouth of that man. And there's actually a pattern in Scripture that begins with the first miracle worker that we talked about. And God reveals this pattern uh, in Moses when He called him and to Moses. If you'll turn to Exodus 6, 28. All right, that's my intro. Now we got about, uh, got about an hour left here, guys, so settle in. We might have to take a break. I'm just kidding. Don't cry. I see that tear coming out of your eye over there. All right, Exodus 6, verse 28. And we're going to go through, uh, well, it's going to be up here. You guys can see here where we're going next as well. Starting in verse 20, 28. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. There's the first part of the pattern. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? So Moses is doing what you and I would probably do. He's a little insecure. I've got a, a speech issue. I don't think I can do this. Okay? And then turn to chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. So he's, he's revealing a pattern here. He's saying, Moses, I'm going to make... Since you think your speech impediment is going to hinder you, I am going to make you as God, so you're going to stand in the place of God, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So there's God, then the prophet, and verse 2, As for you, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that, listen, I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So he's using the signs and the wonders in the same context as the prophet, in the same context as God giving his word to the prophet. So in the first scenario, Moses was in the place of God, Aaron was the mouthpiece of Moses, and Pharaoh was the recipient of God's message. So here's the pattern. God puts his words in the mouth of the prophet being validated by miraculous works, he speaks God's word to the recipient, 
and that recipient either accepts or rejects the word of God that's being spoken. That's the pattern. And a true prophet of God could not speak for themselves or of themselves, not of their own imagination, but rather they had to speak God's words. And God would prove that man was his man and would validate him with miracles, signs, and wonders. Now look over to Exodus 4. Just going to clarify a little more here. Exodus 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? So Moses is asking God, hey, I'm just a dude. They're not going to believe me. Why would they believe me? And listen what the answer is. For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it turned into a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, reach out with your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he reached out with his hand and caught it and it turned into a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay? And right after that, he did two more miracles to illustrate this to Moses. He did the leprous hand. He pulled it out and his hand was leprous. He told him to put it back in and it was healed again. Uh, followed by turning some Nile water into blood. Okay? And he, so he was showing him, I'm going to send you. And yeah, it's not just going to be like some dude saying, hey, by the way, God told me this. You need to do this. I'm going to validate you. They're going to know by the time it's all over that he's God's man. There will be no doubt. And he unfortunately had to take it to the furthest extreme. But God gave Moses the ability to perform miracles for one purpose only, and that was to validate Moses as God's prophet and validate Moses' message as God's own words. Moses was accepted as God's prophet to the point that everything he said and did is now divinely inspired scripture. You're holding it in your hand. So everything that he did, it was proof, it came to pass, and it is now canonical scripture that we consider scripture and we hold it in our hand. It's the word of God. Well, why was that? Because the power to work miracles, to put God's stamp of approval on Moses' claim that he was speaking for God. And this is the pattern for a prophet speaking divine revelation from God, as well as the actual purpose for miracles, all right? And we're going to get into a few more things here. I'm going to clarify even further. But this continues to be the pattern and the purpose of miracles throughout the Old Testament. We see it over and over again. In addition to the miracles that validate, there is also a litmus test for prophets who call themselves prophets. And um, it's a way that God's people can validate or invalidate people who say, God told me to tell you this or God's saying this, or God's saying that, or God told me this, or God told me that. Well, he's not going to leave you without a way to validate that that's from God. Do you understand how important that is? That you, it's not arbitrary, that just a Joe Schmo can't come up to you and say, hey, God told me to tell you this. Well, I mean, sorry, but I think I'll go to God's word. I mean, uh, you better be performing some signs and miracles and wonders or something. But I think it goes beyond that, and I'll share that with you uh, later so that we can have ironclad uh, security in knowing how God works, okay? But he said there, were, there was a test. First, the prophecy cannot contradict revelation that had been given previously, okay? So if God said something back in 
uh, Genesis. He's not going to prophesy something in Exodus and it be different than what he proclaimed in Genesis. Does that make sense to everybody? It can't contradict. And uh, next week we'll probably, I'm going to dig in a little more about false prophets, but, but um, basically what we see is all over uh, the U.S. and around the world today, we've got prophets claiming things that are, uh, that are not even scriptural. They don't even align with scripture. Okay, so go to Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. And we're going to blaze through some of these scriptures, so y'all just have to hold on to your hats, all right? Because uh, we're going to get to the New Testament here in just a minute. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let's follow other gods whom you have not known, and let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So you see that? Back then they're saying if a dreamer or a visionary or somebody comes to you saying, God told me this, and you follow that person and you don't and you don't check it first, you don't hold that man accountable, it's actually evidence that you don't hold God as the the priority, the the the, the king of kings in your life. Like that's what it's saying here. That it, he's testing you to see whether or not you love the Lord with all your heart and your soul. Verse 4: You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. All right? So second, <clears throat> a prophecy must come true. This is huge. A prophecy, if it's thus saith the Lord and they're prophesying, it must come true. Look at Deuteronomy 18, 21, and 22. Deuteronomy 18, 21, and 22. And if you say in your heart, how will we recognize the word which the Lord has not spoken? So if someone's speaking to us a prophecy and it's not from God, how are we supposed to know? Well, here's what he says. When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. So they had reason to fear the prophets when the prophets told them the truth. Most of the time the prophets were speaking, it was because there was impending wrath ahead if they didn't repent, okay? So he's saying... If, and what did we learn in, in our scripture reading today? They were speaking peace. They were speaking hugs and cuddles. They were speaking, hey, everything's going to be just fine. And what the Bible says in Jeremiah is that you left them defenseless. You left them without a leg to stand on. So when we're proclaiming false doctrine to people and we're telling them everything's going to be okay, it's all about love, it's all going to be hugs and cuddles, and then they stand before a holy almighty God and he says, what were you doing? Why didn't you just read the word? Yeah, but so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, or my preacher said this, and my preacher said that. Well, you're going to be held accountable to the truth. We learned that, didn't we? That the word of God is the sword that lays everything bare. So the word of God is going to be what judges us on, on judgment day. Not us, if we're believers, but it, that's what's going to be uh, what judges the folks who don't know him. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 39. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 39. Elijah's on Mount Carmel. He's calling down fire on the altar. And listen what he says. It's, it's essentially one of my favorite stories. I'm sure you heard about it on the flannel graphs in Sunday school. The contest between gods, right? Look at what he says in his prayer. Then at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that what I have done, all of these things are at your word. So the miracles and the signs, he's saying, Lord, validate me, authenticate me as your man. Show them that I'm not here on my own, but I have come in your name and I am doing your work. This is not about me. It's all about you. That's what his prayer is. Look, verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back. See, it brings repentance. It either brings repentance or they reject the truth. 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They didn't say, they didn't say, ooh, wow, look at that miracle. The miracle validated the messenger and caused them to turn to the the message and turn their attention to God, Almighty God, and they repented because of it. That's the purpose. That's the whole purpose. So let's review very quickly. A true prophet of God has to test, has a test to pass if proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Number one, what they prophesy must come true to perfection. Number two, what they prophesy cannot contradict priorly given divine revelation. And by the way, which failure on either one of those points meant that the prophet was to be killed, okay? In the Old Testament, if they got that wrong, the prophet was killed. What do we do today? We actually send them more money. (laughs) Number three, (laughs) the prophet will be validated by supernatural signs and miracles. That doesn't always happen, but again, that just shows you the scarcity of the three periods of time in which miracles happen. Okay, so when we get to the New Testament then... It's fair to ask the question, did anything change? Is it the same pattern? And the answer is yes. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of God's mouthpiece. He was the ultimate prophet and he had the ultimate message from God the Father. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus performed more miracles than any other miracle worker in human history. Okay. However, Even with Jesus, the pattern was no different than it was with Moses and the other Old Testament prophets. The divine purpose of Jesus' miracles was to validate him as God's ultimate messenger who spoke infallibly, who spoke to perfection. Every word that came out of his mouth was was, uh, wrapped in the spirit of God and was at one with the Father God. Everything he said and did was perfection. Perfection. It was in perfect unity with the Spirit and the Father. Okay? He was, in fact, God in the flesh. And the Apostle John makes this point in his gospel in John 5.36. John 5.36. It says, But the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. The pattern didn't change. Jesus is saying the miracles I'm doing is to testify that the Father sent me. I'm here to do His bidding. Y'all see? No change in the pattern. And all these things I do, they're to validate that I'm the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh, the ultimate prophet who's come to fulfill the law, not do away with it, but to fulfill it and to make each and every one of us right with the Father. He was sent by the Father. 
And that's what the miracles were all about. John 6, 14. John 6, 14. This crowd of people stood around. They just witnessed Jesus uh, feed the 5,000, okay? They just watched all this take place. A huge miracle. And it was probably upwards of 15,000 people because it only counted the men. When it's saying 5,000, there were women and children there too. So there were a lot more people there than just 5,000. And what conclusion did that miracle bring them to? Verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. It validated him as being God's man. Do you understand? Specifically, God's man. All right, John 7, 31. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? So they're actually having this conversation in their head. This has got to be the Messiah. There is no way that someone else can come and do more than what he's doing. I mean, he's cal- he calmed the sea. He's, he, he's walking on water. He's doing all these things, right? This has to be the Messiah. John 10, 24 through 26. John 10, 24 through 26. Listen to this. The Jews then surrounded him and began saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see, it's not the works that caused them to believe. They saw him do the works. Do you understand the importance of that? They didn't believe even when they saw the works. They didn't want to believe. They rejected him. That's what's going on here. Now look at John 10, 37 and 38. John 10, 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father... Do not believe me. Jesus is basically saying, hey, if I just came telling you I was the Messiah, you wouldn't have to believe me. Talk is cheap, right? But I'm actually doing miracles. I'm doing incredible miracles to validate me the same way God validated the prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here's what Jesus is actually saying. If I weren't doing the works, then you don't have to believe me. But I am doing the works, and you still don't believe me, and you had better believe me. (laughs) At the very least, take notice of the works that I do is proof that I am God's man that He sent me. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I am His man. You better understand that. Okay, And that's how God validated Moses. That's how he validated Elijah and all the prophets. So you may, guys, you may want to reconsider because the Father is in me and I am in the Father and I am God's man sent specifically to deliver the Word of God to you. And here's where things get, uh, get mixed up with most believers today. People incorrectly think that the miracles uh, were used as primarily an evangelistic tool so that people would believe, that if you blow their minds, they would have no choice but to believe in Jesus and come to Christ. But the focus should never be on the miracles themselves. And, and honestly, that's my greatest, um, I think, um, if I were to have a, an issue with some of the things that are being taught, it's that like you say Jesus, you talk about Jesus, but all you're talking about really are the miracles. That's really what you're after, all right? 
You want to see the, the, the Messiah mojo. That's what you want. You want to see those powerful miracles. And, but they aren't the main point. So what's the main point? The main point is to prove that the words of the prophet are from God himself, the highest authority. So we can't get it twisted. Now, number one, I'm going to, this is the beginning of my conclusion, okay? Number one, Jesus's miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism. Okay, so just go with me for a second. Jesus walked on water. He fed the multitudes a couple times, at one time 4,000, at one time 5,000. He calmed the storm. He healed all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, and he cast out demons. But what was the most incredible miracle that Jesus did before he died himself and was resurrected himself? What was like the, the, the biggest, most amazing miracle that Jesus did? It was he raised Lazarus from the dead. He proved that he had the power of life over death. Okay, so surely if the miracle itself was for the purpose of evangelism, of causing someone to believe in Christ, raising someone from the dead would do the trick, wouldn't it? If someone raised from the dead, you would think that my Uncle Bob, who's been rejecting Christ for all these years, I don't have an Uncle Bob, I'm just, this is hypothetical. But if my hypothetical Uncle Bob was rejecting Christ all these years, and I prayed, Lord, send my Aunt Thelma up from the grave. She raises from the dead, and she goes to preach, and she goes to preach the gospel to my Uncle Bob. You would think that Uncle Bob would believe, wouldn't you? But let's read what Scripture says. Uh, Luke 16, 27 through 31. This is the rich man and Lazarus story, and he's basically in Hades. He's in the place of torment, the rich man. And he said, Then I request of you, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment as well. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So they have the written word that testifies of what God has already done. They can have faith in that, the written word, what he's already done in the Old Testament in one of those times of miracles. Just believe that. You don't have to have it right now, okay? And that is good enough, isn't it? Can you not just believe in the mighty works he's already performed and trust in the word that's already written that he's already given us? Look at verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So can we say that miracles, even the greatest miracles, was, the, was used for the purpose of evangelism, of, of bringing people to Christ? No, that was not the purpose of the miracles. So it's saying if they don't have the faith to believe what's already been revealed and written, then even someone raising from the dead to preach the gospel to them wouldn't be enough. And that's really where we are in the body of Christ today too, y'all. We can fight real hard to put rear ends in these seats. But unless the Holy Spirit draws and the Holy Spirit opens people's eyes to the truth of God's Word, then it, it really it's just it's a, it's a moot point. It's 
we need to beg God to do what he will to open the hearts and minds of folks, to bring the people that he wants to bring. We don't have to work hard to get people in here. There are things we can do, but when we do these things, we don't need to judge ourselves whether or not we're doing terribly or doing great. We just need to do what we do as best we can, preach the word of God, and let the sword do the dividing, and they will either accept or reject it, okay? Number two, Jesus' many miracles were not even primarily about ending human suffering. So I hear this argument all the time, and this is one of the, where emotion gets in the way. Well, look at all these poor children who are sick and the children who have cancer. Do you think God wants them to be sick? Do you think God, well, no, but God didn't bring sin in the world either. Like, that's, that's our fault. But, but the deal is this. Does God perform miracles primarily is the purpose of miracles for alleviating human suffering? And we see in Scripture there were a few times that Christ was moved by His compassion, but we also, also see that that was not the primary purpose. Look at John 5, 3 through 8. John 5, 3 through 8. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, and paralyzed. So there's this portico covering the pool uh, of uh, Bethesda. There's a multitude, a whole bunch of sick, paralyzed, ill people standing there by the pool. Now a man, one man out of the multitudes, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus, upon seeing him, laying there and knowing that he's already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, do you want to get well? Seems like a kind of a silly question. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the, wa when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk, okay? So we see out of a multitude of sick people, Jesus chooses one because he had compassion on this one man and he heals him and then slips away after that, okay? Now Mark 1, 32 through 39. Mark 1, 32 through 39. We're, we're winding it down here, y'all, okay? So just hang with me for a little bit longer here. Uh, 30, verse 32, now when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. That's, that's pretty incredible, that statement right there. Uh, verse 35, and in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went away to be secluded uh, to a place that was secluded and prayed there for a time. Verse 36, Simon and his companions eagerly searched for Jesus. Why? Well, they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And what did Jesus say? Right. He, they wanted him. This was, this was typical. Jesus would perform a miracle. He would heal someone or a whole bunch of people, and then they would follow him. They would follow him to where he was next. So he fed the 5,000, went across the, the Sea of Galilee on a boat. They had walked all the way around the sea and met him on the other side and were like, hey, is it dinner time again? So they were following him. That's what's happening here. 
So they went to find him again and said, Jesus, we want you to perform more miracles. And here's what he says in verse 8. Jesus said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach. And that word is to herald divine truth. So that I may herald divine truth there as well. For this is why I have come. To herald the, the message of God, the word of God. And he went into their synagogues preaching throughout Galilee. So, so heralding divine truth accompanied with the stamp of approval. He was also casting out demons. Do you see how that works? The miracles are not the thing. The miracles are supporting, validating the messenger of God. And we see once again, he was, he was proclaiming divine truth. The, the miracles that he did validated him as God's man. And in his case, the God man. So the main reason Jesus performed miracles was not for evangelism, although some did believe because they believed who He was, that He was the Son and they put their faith in Him, not the miracles that He did, okay? That He was a legitimate prophet of God. And the main reason Jesus performed miracles was not out of compassion, okay? He, he, he wasn't uh, pouring out His compassion to everyone, although... I'm sure every miracle he did was out of compassion, but there were many people around the pool that he could have stayed there all afternoon and healed all of them, but he only healed the one. You see what I'm saying? So that means if there's inconsistency, then maybe if there's inconsistency with my, what my thinking and why I believe he was doing what he was doing, then maybe I need to reconsider the purpose behind why he was doing what he was doing. It wasn't for evangelism. It wasn't just for compassion. Okay? Uh, the reason he came was to, was to preach divine truth. And he performed miracles to confirm that he spoke, was speaking the very words of God because he was God, so that they knew, everyone knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he came to do everything that he claimed and the Old Testament claimed the Messiah would do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you are encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you.